0: Why don't you take your Bible and open up to the book of Acts because we're starting a new book, new year, new book. So today I'm going to do an introduction, but I'm going to read just the first uh, oh, five or six verses just to, just to get us a flavor. And here's what it says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven and he had by the holy spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen to these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many uh, after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 year uh, 40 days and speaking to them things concerning the kingdom of god now, gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the, that which the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's far enough. You know, if you were to go to a movie streaming service like Netflix, you'll find that they list their movies by categories. Comedy, romance, science fiction, westerns. One of the popular categories is action and adventure movies. Now, some of these are part of a series like the James Bond movies, or Indiana Jones, or Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, and Good Day to Die Hard. Now, General Douglas MacArthur said that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. Well, old action adventure movies never die. They live on in their sequels. Now, you might think that all it takes to make a action and adventure movie is to have a lot of fight scenes and some big explosions, but according to the Industrial Scripts website, there's a lot more to putting a good action adventure movie together. In the article that they had entitled, What Makes for a Good Action and Adventure Movie Script, they mentioned a number of components that it has to have to be a good one. The first they call the hero's quest. The hero's quest. The lead character has to go on some kind of a mission to accomplish an important goal that will test him both physically and emotionally, and uh, for instance, Rambo goes to Vietnam to rescue missing POWs, or James Bond has to stop the Doctor Evil No, or uh, Doctor No, um, from disrupting the launch of American rockets. The hero usually starts out on his own on the quest, but along the way, he encounters not only enemies but finds allies, some of whom will turn against him somewhere along the script. Well, secondly, there has to be hardships, setbacks, and insurmountable odds. I mean, if there's no struggle, there's no story. What makes a hero amazing is that despite all the things that he has to overcome, he's able to accomplish Mission Impossible. Well, the third thing you have to have is elements of surprise and anticipation. I mean, if you know what's coming next in the movie, the movie becomes predictable and boring. But if you keep, uh, they keep you wondering and guessing on what's going to happen next, you're engaged in the film. I mean, the scriptwriters want you at some various points to say, you know, I never saw that coming. Fourth thing you have to have is interesting characters. Evil, calculating villains. Beautiful but treacherous women. Naive, good-hearted men. Some seek to destroy our hero. Some seek to help him. But all play their part in moving the narrative forward to the climax of the movie where the hero can say, mission accomplished. The death ray machine has been blown up. The world is safe. Private Ryan has been saved and brought home. The hero can now write off into the sunset, at least until the time comes to make the sequel. Now if you were to apply movie categories to the various books of the Bible, which would you put them under? I think you'd put Joshua under war documentaries. Hosea would go under romance, along with Ruth and Song of Solomon. The book of Revelation you'd have to put into the category of science nonfiction. But if you're looking for one book to put in the category of action and adventure would have to be the book of Acts. Acts has all the elements that make for a great adventure story. I mean, while well, in the early part of the book it mentions the, uh, all the disciples, it focuses primarily on Peter. And the last half of the book focuses on Paul. They're our heroes, and their mission is to bring the gospel to an unsaved world. Do our heroes face setbacks and hardships and insurmountable odds? They surely do arrests and imprisonments, miraculous rescues, bold confrontations, attacks from the outside, subversion from the inside. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the building of that church was going to come with blood, sweat, and tears. Luther said that the gospel never goes forward except for by blood and fire. In Acts 7, we see the first blood of the church shed when Stephen was martyred. By the end of the book of Acts, at that time, Nero was burning Christians In the Colosseum. Are there elements of anticipation and surprise? Well, how about uh, when Peter's arrested and waiting in prison for execution? The Christians were praying earnestly for him, but they were anticipating his death. But then God sent an angel to rescue him. Peter thought he was having a dream until he found himself outside standing in the street. When he knocked on the door where the believers were meeting and praying, a girl named Rhoda answered the door. She was so excited she left him standing outside and went back to announce that he is there. They said, Oh, you've seen his ghost. They anticipated his death. They were surprised to find he was alive. Are there interesting characters in the book of Acts? Think of that demon possessed girl who kept following Paul around saying, These men are proclaiming the way of eternal life. Paul got so bugged by it that he cast the demon out. The girl's master got so upset that he had Paul arrested and thrown into jail. Paul's sitting there with Barnabas or Silas, whoever it was, I believe it's Silas, and they're praying at midnight, and God sends an earthquake. Which causes the jailer to be converted and stand before him and say, What must I do to be saved? How about villains like Herod, who was struck down when he received praise, acclaiming him as God? Or Elamus, the magician who tried to keep the proconsul Sergius Paulus from hearing the gospel. Paul struck him with blindness. Was the mission accomplished? Jesus told his disciples, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 8. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of that mission extends beyond their time, the book of Acts, even to our very day. But to a great degree, much of that had been fulfilled by the time that the 30 years covered by uh, the book of Acts was over. Peter felt, or Paul felt that he had accomplished his part of the mission. Listen to what he says in Romans fifteen nineteen to 20. He went out in the power and signs of wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit so that in Jerusalem and around as far as I Illyricum, I, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where it is all, uh, Christ has already been named so that it will not b- build on another man's foundation, but as it's written, those who had not seen, or, who had not, I uh, had news of him, shall see, and those who had not heard of him shall understand. Now, in the weeks and the months to come, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit empowered the disciples and directed these men to fulfill their mission. But for right now, I want to give just an introduction into the book of Acts and, uh, by asking and answering a series of questions. And before we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father God, I do pray and ask for grace and mercy. This is a book of action, and we want to be inspired by it and then imitate it, Lord, in the same faith that the apostles did. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Well, so the first question I want to ask is simply this, why study the book of Acts? Well, because it's only one or it's one of only 66 books inspired by God. Now we call the Bible a book, but really it's a collection of books, 66 of them. They were written by 40 different authors in three different languages from three different continents over a period of 1500 years. The Bible claims and Jesus affirmed that the scripture is the word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples, asking them to sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.6. And then in 2 Timothy 3, uh, uh, 16, it says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, in 1952, uh, the people who published the Encyclopedia Britannica put out a 54-volume set known as the Great Books of the Western World. Now, included in these were works that they considered to be the most important writings in Western culture. Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Augustine, Aquinas, Copernicus, Shakespeare, Milton, and Marx. Now, some of these works people have found inspiring, but they weren't inspired. These were the words of men. The Bible is the word of God. Now, it's not just that the book of Acts is one of 66 books and one of the more important books. It's actually the most important book when it comes to understanding the history of the church and the spread of the gospel. It's in this book where we read about the creation of the church at Pentecost, where 3,000 people were converted through one sermon preached by Peter on that day. It's here where we find about the ongoing growth of the church and its increasing opposition to it. Here we see the setbacks the church faced, the dangers they encountered, and yet the relentless spread of the gospel across the Mediterranean world. It's from this book that we learn that God can use ordinary people empowered by his spirit to accomplish extraordinary things. That brings us to our second question. (laughs) Who wrote the book of Acts? Well, it was written by Luke, the same man who penned the third gospel. I mean, listen to the way the gospel of Luke opens up. He writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses, servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me, or for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. Now listen to the way he opens the book of Acts. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day which he was taken up into heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles that he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, world leaders are often concerned about how history will remember them. Winston Churchill, the leader of Britain during World War II, said, history is going to be kind to me, for I intend to write it. He did. He wrote a six-volume uh, history of World War II. Well, Luke wrote a two-volume history of Christianity, his gospel, and also the book of Acts. What do we know about this man? <clears throat> well, several things that are significant. First of all, he was a Gentile. In fact, he's the only Gentile writer of a book of the Bible. How do we know he was a Gentile? Because Paul, in Colossians 4, 10 to 11, says this, My fellow prisoners, Aristarchus, sends his, uh, you his greeting, as does Mark and his cousin, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, Jesus, who's called Justice, also is sending greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Now notice that Paul does not include Luke among the Jews, which presumably was because he was a Gentile. Those verses also tell us that he was a doctor. Now, if you go through the Gospel of Luke and also the Book of Acts, you'll find that Luke is very interested in incidents where Jesus healed people with various ailments. By the way, though, I think it's kind of funny that in the Gospel, when he gives the account of the woman who had 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 hemorrhaging for 12 years, in the other Gospels, it says she had spent much money and given much money to doctors and had never gotten better. Luke omits that, perhaps for professional courtesy. Well, the third thing we learn about the person called Luke is that he was a travel companion of, of Paul and a faithful friend. Now, in the early parts of Acts, when he recounts what happens, he says things like, then they did this, then this happened, then Paul did this. But as you get farther along in the book, he starts saying things like, then we, then we did this, then we, that's because he joined Paul in his missionary journeys, and he distinguishes between the time when he wasn't there and the time he was. And as I said, he was also faithful to Paul. I mean, when he came to the end of his life shortly before he was executed by Nero, Paul wrote to Timothy, bemoans the fact that all of his friends had abandoned him. He urged Timothy, saying, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas proved to be an unbeliever. He did ministry with Paul for years. Paul didn't know he was an unbeliever. Don't be surprised when you come across people that I thought for sure they were a believer. And they proved not to be. He said, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in service. Like the vultures in the Jungle Book cartoon, Luke could have joined a few others in singing to Paul, we're friends to the bitter end. I talked to one of my, my wife's looking at me like, why would you do that? you know, I was talking to my nieces and nephews or my grandchildren the other day or whatever, and I mentioned the Jungle Book, and they said, what's that? (laughs) Oh, I know what you're going to be watching next time you come. Well, the other thing we have to say about Luke was that he was a careful historian. You'll often hear stories about uh, our critics uh, say things like the Bible stories were fabricated and they were embellished uh, from the, uh, from Scripture or to the Scripture. But, uh, you know, they would say, that, you know, I mean, these were primitive people living in unscientific times. And so they don't give us accurate history. But Sir Ramsey, or William Ramsey, was an archaeologist and a Bible scholar who started out actually as a skeptic of the book of Acts, uh, took a journey retracing Paul's missionary travels as recorded in the book of Acts. And he found himself amazed again and again at just how accurate Luke was in what he recorded. He lists some 84 historical points where Luke gives indication that he was very accurate In what he recorded. In one place, he refers to the local leader as the Polytarch. And they said, well, there's no reference anywhere in Roman writings to someone called a politarch. But then they found an archaeological uh, dig, they found something that mentioned that the leader of that area was called a Polytarch. Well, after the end of years of study and research, Ramsey changed his mind and he concluded this. He said, Luke is a historian of first rank, not merely as as to the statements of fact and trustworthy. He also possessed a true historical sense. In short, this author should be placed among the greatest of historians. Now, Luke investigated everything carefully when he wrote the gospel, and he recorded everything accurately when he wrote the book of Acts. Well, when was the book written? Not only do you hear the critics complain and assert that the Bible is stories drawn from pagan myths but they also claim that the Gospels were written hundreds of years after the events purported to be recorded there. But here's the thing since the book of Acts is volume 2 and the Gospel of Luke is volume 1, volume 1 was certainly written before volume 2. And if Sir Ramsey is right about the strong evidence that's presented in the book of Acts that he was actually an eyewitness of these events, that would mean that the Gospels had to be written, uh, that Gospel had to be written before this, very early. Now, we know that Luke focuses much of Acts on the ministry and the mission trip of the, uh, trips of the Apostle Paul, but at the end, where he ends it, Paul is still in prison in Rome. He doesn't mention anything about the death of Paul. Well, that's, he certainly would have if Paul had died at that point. The reason he didn't is because Paul was still alive. Now we and he also doesn't mention anything about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would have been fitting, considering the opposition of the Jews to the gospel. Well, if the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was in 70 AD, and we know that Paul was uh, uh, was beheaded by Nero somewhere around 64 BC to 66 BC, that means the writing of of the book of Acts would have to be before Paul's execution. Which puts it back between 62 and 63 AD. That's not hundreds of years after the event, and that means the gospel was written before that, which puts it back probably at least another three, four, or five years. Well, we just started uh, 2023. If you were to go back 30 years ago, which is the amount of time covered in the book of Acts, we would be back to 1993. Bill Clinton had just been elected president, Schindler's List was released that year. The top singers were Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Mariah Carey. Two of whom have already died. Well, that brings us to our next question. What's the purpose of the book of Acts? Well, he says the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus had begun to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven, after he had chosen by the Holy Spirit, given uh, had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now notice that he says that the first account was all about all that Jesus began to teach and do, He's implying that his second account, the book of Acts, is about Jesus' continued ministry, that being through his disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. You remember when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room that night that he was betrayed and he spoke to them about the Holy Spirit? He said, I've asked the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth which the world cannot receive because they do not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. John fourteen sixteen to 17. And then in the next chapter, he says, when the helper comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom I will send, uh, uh, who will be sent by the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now the disciples were distraught when they realized Jesus was going away, but he encouraged them saying, but I tell you the truth, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and and they no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what's mine and will disclose it to you. All things that are the Father's are mine, and therefore I said to you, he will take what's mine and will disclose it to you. John 16, 7-15. And as they're preparing to go back to heaven, Jesus instructed his followers. He said, don't jump right into ministry, but wait for the Spirit to come. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Judea, or Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, it's interesting to me, I have quite a few commentaries on the book of Acts, and a lot of them have titles like this, The Spreading Flame, The Church Aflame, The Spirit, the Church, and the World. The authors of those books rightly understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is highlighted throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit's mentioned in the very first chapter of this book, and the main purpose of this book is uh, also in the last chapter, but the main purpose of this book is to show how the Holy Spirit empowered the church to fulfill the Great Commission. That brings us to our last question. What's the benefits of studying Acts? What's the benefits? Well, first of all, it gives us an understanding of the early church and its history. In 1977, ABC aired a miniseries entitled Roots, based on the book by Alex Haley. It tells the story of a young Mandinka African boy named Kunta Kinte who was captured and shipped off to America to be a slave. The, the story traces the life of his life and that of his descendants. And the movie was one of the most watched miniseries ever produced, and it sparked an interest not only among black people but white people to trace back their family to get back to their roots. Well, the roots of the church go back to the, its creation at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the New Covenant was inaugurated. The story is told in the book of Acts. Now, much of the impetus for the Protestant Reformation was to get back to the theology and the practice of the early church. But you can't do that unless you know what the early church believed and did. And Acts helps us to get back to our roots. Secondly, it tells of the amazing spread of the gospel. Did you know that by the close of the first century, a mere 67 years after Jesus, churches had been established across the entire Roman Empire and it had gone eastward, even into Persia. And there's a strong tradition that tells us that the Apostle Thomas brought the gospel to India 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection. Now, one of the reasons for the rapid spread of the gospel was because it was understood that every Christian personally had a responsibility to share the good news. Whatever the opposition, whatever the setbacks, we keep reading statements in the book of Acts that say things like this. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed, and the Lord was adding to the numbers daily. Third thing, though, is it shows us some of the struggles that the church had at the beginning. The church had to face challenges in every age. The early church had to figure out it's the relationship between Jews and Gentiles within their congregations, masters and slaves, men and women. They had to deal with theological issues. Are Christians responsible? And bound by the Mosaic Law, how should Christians relate to their pagan neighbors? How should Christians respond to persecution? To what degree should we submit to our government? The early Christians, the early Church, had to face these issues, even as we're facing them in our day. There's well, a the fourth thing. It shows that the Church shows how the Church went from being a Jewish sect to a Gentile world religion. Jesus told his disciples, "You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria." into the remotest part of the earth. Now I am sure that after having early success among their Jewish countrymen that the apostles were convinced that Israel would be converted and after that then the Gentiles would. So it would be mainly Jews and a smattering or perhaps even a good number of Gentiles. But what happened? The Jews all rejected or at least for the most part the gospel It was the Gentiles who embraced it. And we have an account of one of these shocking things, uh, events in the uh, chapter 13 of Acts. It says this, The next day, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, because it's just filled with pagans, they had heard the, uh, the first week when Paul spoke there, they came back, hey, did you hear that, this guy speaking there? And so the place is packed. So it'd be like, you know, seeing the people here, and all of a sudden the whole church is filled, and it's all from people in downtown Minneapolis and just the wildest people you're ever going to see. It says, the next day, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they are blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke up boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you are re- but since you are repudiating it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now listen to this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now notice, that day, it was almost Gentiles only who got saved. The Jews didn't. But which Gentiles got saved and which Jews got saved? As many as had been past tense appointed to eternal life. The Bible teaches here and elsewhere that it's God who determines who's going to be saved. You preach the gospel, you witness to people, but God is the one who opens the heart and changes it so that a person believes. And when Paul finally did make it to Rome, he presented the gospel to the Jews there. Most of them rejected it. His last words to them were these. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your father, saying, go and tell this people, meaning the Jews, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and with their eyes uh, have been closed. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Today, there's only a small minority of people in the church who are Jews. The overwhelming majority is made up of Gentiles. Well, Here's the last thing, though, we learn from this book. It tells us of one of the most amazing conversion stories in history. I mean, John Wesley, do you know he was a missionary and a pastor before he ever got saved? That's a frustrating job if you are trying to get people converted when you yourself aren't. But one day he was sitting in a church uh, after spending time with the uh, Moravians and uh, he was at Aldersgate and he was listening to someone read the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans and God used it to convert him. Now Luther himself was converted while he was studying Romans and he came across the phrase that said the just shall live by faith. Augustine, a thousand years before that, was converted when he was reading Romans, and he came across these words, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or in sensuality, not in strife or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, three dramatic conversions that came from the reading of the book of Romans, but none of those conversions are as dramatic as Saul of Tarsus, who later wrote the book of Romans. I mean, so dramatic and stunning was this conversion that many of the Christians who heard about it thought it was a ruse, it was some kind of trick. But Paul says in Galatians 1, 22 to 24, he says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches in Judea, which were in Christ, but they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he was once trying to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Now, George Littleton was an English statesman, author, and poet, who, among other things, published a history of Henry II. As a skeptic of Christianity, he tried to debunk the story of the conversion of Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. But after studying for a long time and trying to come up with some alternative explanation for Paul's conversion and subsequent life, he began to realize that the only reasonable explanation was the one given in the book of Acts, that Paul did have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. In his book entitled Observations on the Conversion and and Apostleship of St. Paul, written in 1747, Littleton pointed out that from an earthly perspective, Paul had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by claiming that he had encountered the risen Christ. He gave up his position and prestige as a Jewish leader to join a despised Christian sect, which resulted in being hounded and mocked and persecuted for the rest of his life, finally paying the ultimate price for his Christian faith, death by beheading. Now, Paul himself was amazed by his own conversion and the grace that was shown to him in it. Writing to Timothy, he said this in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he's considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe for eternal life. Look, if if God can turn an enemy of the gospel like Paul into the greatest proponent of Christianity, He can save your relatives and your friends and co-workers who seem so resistant to the gospel message. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And as we go through the book of Acts, my prayer is that God will help us to see the display of this gospel power so that we might believe that the saving message still has power in our day as well. May God help us to see not only the action and adventure in the book of Acts, but also to experience some of that in our own life as we live for the cause of Christ. May give us the grace, and may we have an adventure in 2023. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the book of Acts, for the stories of people who went before us, whose lives were changed dramatically by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who got the gospel out, at a great cost to themselves, but also great joy for themselves. And we want to experience that same joy. We want to see people get saved in 2023. Lord, this last couple of years have been an adventure for many of us. Lots of things happened that we didn't expect, and that's going to be true in 2023. Father, I pray, since we do not know how much time we have left, each of us individually, or before Jesus returns, that we would make use of the next year and be ready for all the things that you'd have for us. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.